This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material Marginalia written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes that which are, are incidental, incidental or additional to the main topic. The main topic in the margin of a book. Set in Montgomery, Alabama in the early 1970s, Take My Hand follows a black nurse working at a family planning clinic who is desperate to do the right thing, whatever that might be. Author Dolan Perkins Valdez was inspired by the United States history with administering forced birth control and sterilizations, and the result is a moving and emotional account of the impact of this horrific practice. I recently spoke with Dolan Perkins Valdez about this book and her inspiration. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. So your book is titled Take My Hand, and it was released today. We are recording this on April 12th. So first of all, congratulations on your book. Thank you, Beth. The novel has been receiving some pre-publication buzz. It is the April Indie Next pick, which is where independent bookstores from all over the country select their favorite book of the month, and it was their top choice. But since it is so new, I'm hoping you can give our listeners a brief description of the novel. Sure. So it's set in 1973, Montgomery, Alabama, and it's about a nurse, Sybil Townsend, who has just graduated nursing school and has taken her first job at a family planning clinic. She is determined to help young women make good choices for their lives, but it isn't long before she discovers that something horribly wrong is going on at that clinic. So Take My Hand is a work of fiction, but it is rooted in some disturbing historical truths. So can you talk a bit about our country's history with, you know, forced birth control and sterilization? Because this is inspired by a real case, right? That's right. It's inspired by Ralph V. Weinberger, which was a case that took up the issue of two uh, sisters, many Lee and Mary Alice Ralph, who were 12 and 14 years old and who were sterilized without the consent of their families by a federally funded family planning clinic. You know, when I first heard about this book, I was reminded of another case, the the Buck v. Bell case, which you mentioned in your author's note. And it was one of the first forced sterilization situations that I was aware of. And for listeners who might not know, this was a Supreme Court decision in 1927 in which Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in his argument that, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough. And it's my understanding that, you know, Hitler was paying attention to what we were doing in the United States because the Nazis followed us. They cited our laws at the trials at Nuremberg. So... You wrote in your author's note that compulsory sterilization of, quote, unfit inmates of public institutions is still federally protected by this ruling. And then in 2020, you know, a whistleblower alleged that immigrant women were being sterilized without their consent at like ICE facilities. So the subject has historical significance, but it's also still timely, isn't it? It really is. We know that Buck v. Bell was never overturned as a decision. There have been subsequent decisions that have provided some clarification, but the ruling itself still stands. And we know that even with informed consent laws, these 
tragedies continue to happen to women, most recently, as you just noted, in California state prisons, where uh, state inmates were being sterilized without their consent, and also allegedly against women who are being held in immigrant detention facilities. So this is something that we need to continue to pay attention to, particularly for the most vulnerable members of our population. So getting back to the novel, um, the story is told through the voice of Sybil Townsend, and it oscillates between 2016 and her memories of 1973. And Sybil is a black nurse employed at the Montgomery Family Planning Clinic. So can you talk to me about writing this story from Sybil's perspective? Because, you know, also in your author's note, you didn't have firsthand accounts of the nurses who worked at the Montgomery Family Planning Clinic. So you had to assume their lens. Was it difficult to put yourself in their time and place? It's always difficult to put yourself in another time and place. Um, People thought differently. They saw the world differently. I've learned that writing historical fiction, that the first thing I have to understand is that people didn't have nearly the media consumption that we have now. They waited for the afternoon paper, for example, to learn what had happened in the news of the day. You didn't have cable news. So there is a real challenge to writing people of any period. And I did not take that for granted, even though when this happened, I was alive, but I didn't take for granted that I needed to do some historical research. But I was really motivated, even though I never found anything about those nurses. I was really motivated by that silence in the archives. I wanted to know what it must have been like to be a nurse at that clinic and have this happen under your watch. I wanted to know how that must have devastated you. You know, as we mentioned, Sybil Townsend is a black nurse in the 1970s. And and though it is technically past the civil rights movements of the 1960s, she constantly deals with discrimination and racism. But her experience of living in the South was vastly different than that of the Williams, another black family, wasn't it? It was. She comes from a middle class family. Her father is a doctor. Her mother is an artist. They're all college educated people. She has her own car. Uh, She lives in a home on Centennial Hill. Her family is very much ensconced in the Black middle-class community. And she has really been insulated from some of the most impoverished encounters in her community. So this is all fairly new to her. And it was really important to me that we did not speak about this as just a racial issue or just a class issue or just a women's issue. It was really important to me that we saw that all three of those things intersect. And also disability, because like one of the Ralph sisters, one of my characters, India, has a disability. And that played a role as well. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because Sybil's first case is treating the Williams sisters, India and Erica. They are 11 and 13 years old. And, you know, on top of the, you know, sexism, racism, economic discrimination they face, India is also nonverbal and thought to have a learning disability. So I'm wondering if you can talk to me about the dynamic between India and Erica and why it matters that India is nonverbal. 
Well, uh, first I want to say that I don't know the particulars of the actual disability that the Ralph sisters have. So this nonverbal creation was my own. Right, 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 right. And I wanted to emphasize the notion that not only were they being sterilized because they were Black, not only were they being sterilized because they were poor, there was also real concern stemming from cases like Buck v. Bell that a disabled person could not raise a child. So those sisters become very protective of each other. They love each other very deeply. Um, The older sister, Erica, is very protective of her younger sister and in some ways is a conduit for her to communicate. But um, it was important to me that I also pictured them both as just children Um, India loves dolls. She um, loves to play with stray dogs like my children like to. She is a child. Erica is a young preteen who wants to have friends and who wants to have a normal life and who wants to go to school. So it was really important to me to just picture them as kids first and then all of these other things sort of second. You know, another obstacle that they faced had to do with Mace and Mrs. Williams because they were both illiterate. They did not know how to read. They did not know what they were signing. That was another obstacle, wasn't it? Part of what I was trying to say is that it wasn't just that they were illiterate. It was also that they trusted the federal government. They trusted that the federal government was looking out for their best interests. They trusted that the federal government was trying to help them. They were duped in that sense. They were smart people. They had the ability to comprehend. So if someone had told them that they were taking their daughters to perform a tubal ligation, they would have said no. If someone had said, your daughters will never be able to have children after the surgery, they would have said no. But no one explained that to them. No one told them because they didn't want to give them the opportunity to have an answer. They took it upon themselves to make that decision for them. Yeah, they were lied to. Do you have a copy of your book with you? I do. So the epigraph, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s reported last words on April 4th, 1968. And I'm assuming that's where the title comes from. But I'm wondering if you could read those words and talk about you know, his influence on you, on the story, on your characters. Ben, make sure you play Take My Hand, Precious Lord, in the meeting tonight. Play it real pretty. My understanding is that Take My Hand, Precious Lord was Martin Luther King Jr.'s favorite song. And he requested it that night. And uh, this song was written by a songwriter by the name of Thomas Dorsey, but was probably made most famous by Mahalia Jackson's rendition of it and later Aretha Franklin's rendition of it. It, to me, represents so much about this community because, one, I had read and visited Montgomery and learned so much about Martin Luther King Jr.'s special role in that town as a young minister. He went, he moved there in his 20s with his young family and became... Um, a pastor at Dexter Avenue Church and became the leader of the Montgomery bus boycott. He 
um, was an inspiration to that community. He later, of course, marched during the voting rights march from Selma to the state capitol in Montgomery. He led that march. So I really thought that this title, which was actually suggested by my publicist, Craig Burke, he came up with it and I'm grateful to him because not only does it capture the spirit of this community, the faith of this community in this post-civil rights moment, but it also to me captures Montgomery as an important site of the civil rights movement and of the continued struggle for Black people for equality. Can you talk about the significance of Sybil's name? Well, Sybil is named, um, she's born, I want to say she's born in 1950 or 1951. And her parents name her that in a sort of hopeful way that she will be the embodiment of all that they are fighting for. Civil rights as a phrase was already in use at that time. And they wanted her to be the future. And so they name her that. I've always really liked that name. Uh, a friend of mine, her sister's named Civil, And I never forgot that name and thought, you know, one day I may use that in a book. But when I began to write this, I began to really see that this would be my character who was the hope of her family and was the hope of her generation. You know, you mentioned her her parents. Um, among the serious issues explored in this novel, Sybil's mother deals with some significant mental health challenges that are mostly ignored by her physician husband and her nurse daughter. And was this because of the stigma against mental health treatment in the 1970s, or were Sybil and her father just unable to view her as a person outside of motherhood? Because, you know, June, Sybil's mother, for me, I mean, at times she was removed, but she was also the most present at times. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, when she would talk to Sybil about not embarrassing Mace or reinforce that their family isn't a sideshow. Talk to me about June. Well... June suffers from depression, which I think even today we overlook um, and is often written off in, in so many different ways other than for what it is. And so she is an artist and she is often out in her studio that her husband has built for her. And so in some ways they are able to overlook some of the more concerning signs of her depression. I don't think so much that they can't see her outside of motherhood because June isn't a traditional Southern mother, right? She's not very domestic. She doesn't cook. She doesn't do any of those things traditionally that we think of when we think of Southern mothers. But she is present for Sybil at really important moments. And she's not a bad mother, right? She's just a mother who is trying to get through each day until the family has to recognize that she needs help. So I think that that's a combination of African-American culture, which was often um, unclear, even if you were a medical professional about some of the troubling signs of depression, but also I would say Southern culture, say American culture, to be honest with you, we are all still learning to recognize the signs of depression. You wrote that you passionately believe in the power of the novel and its readers to raise the alarm, influence heart, and impact lives. What is your hope for this novel? 
just want people to talk about it. I want book clubs to read it. I want people to learn about this case. I want people to learn about some of the more recent cases. What they do with that information, I don't know. And I can't control. But I just feel this pressing need. And I felt like this the whole time I was writing the book that I have to finish this book so that people know. And I feel like that really about all three of my books that I want people to know these stories. And, and that's all a writer can really hope for. Well, the book is Take My Hand, Dolan Perkins Valdez. Congratulations, it's a fabulous book and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Dolan Perkins Valdez, author of the book, Take My Hand, which was published by Berkeley. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our intern is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.